So welcome to episode 69 of the Cake Watch podcast. Now, the Cake Watch podcast was a weekly podcast about Brexit. Um, well, it's not about Brexit anymore. It's about the UK's relationship with the EU or the EU's relationship with the, e- with the UK. It's not weekly anymore. It's a bit more ad hoc. Um, but it still features me, Chris Kendall. I'm um, an official working for the EU. Um, but I'm doing this obviously in a strictly personal capacity. Um, and my co-host is Steve Bullock, but he's not here today. I don't, I don't know when he's going to be back. Um, he's stepping back a bit from it all. Um, but we want to keep the podcast going because there's lots to talk about. So today, um, excitingly, we have uh, a returning guest, David Hennig. David. Hello. Um, delightful to be back. Um, I can't even remember when it was I was last talking to you and Steve but it was a long time ago possibly at least a Prime Minister ago <laughs> at least one <laughs> uh, definitely pre-Brexit um, now I wonder whether we were still in those days going to deliver exactly the same benefits outside the EU as we were as we inside is that do you think that's still the case <laughs> definitely that was definitely we, 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 cakeism was still in full flow do you think it, cakeism is still in full well we could talk about that well i think we should yeah so no i've got my notes here it says episode 24 we had lunch with you that was in september 2018 so a year and a half ago and what we discussed was how we might get to a people's vote <laughs> and what that might look like oh dear Times have passed. Um, that uh, we have bre- we have Brexit. We have negotiating mandates yeah. from the EU. We have a speech from Boris Johnson. We have Brexited, and this is going to be a golden new future for the UK. Yeah, yeah. Let's just catch up on where we are. So we we last the last podcast we did was this slightly sorry mm. for itself podcast. Um, recorded after the election, um, and it was a slight, it was a sad one because it was the last one that we were doing with the UK as an EU member state. So now we're through, we're through the looking glass. We're out the other side. I'm back in. Um, we're actually recording from my office, <laughs> which is a first. Um, I've never sat in the office and done this before, um, but it's my lunch break, so I'm, I'm allowed to do it. It's still strictly personal. Um, how did you? How did you spend your weekend? Your first weekend of independence. Um, I did something that I never normally do, but this is the uh, freedom that we now have, is I have the freedom now to work throughout the whole weekend because there's so many documents coming out and about that and so much I had to catch up with because it's proving difficult to keep up with all the uh, requests and demands to know what the UK is actually doing that, yes, I spent much of it working. Uh, this I is something I hate doing but my kids are now at the age where they generally prefer not to be seen too often with me so it does give <laughs> provide quite a lot of uh, extra time i know you're uh, yours are still at the point they actually like you so. <laughs> well, um, well I, I have i have them scattered over the generations aren't yeah. they're, they're they're dotted between mm. the ages of one and 18 mm. so 
yeah it was a strange weekend it was it's a strange feeling that i drove through the internal eu border between france and the uk on thursday night and i came back through an external eu border on monday night and there weren't, weren't any major changes except that on my way out um last night the uk customs asked me if i had anything to declare which felt a bit odd yeah they shouldn't do that that not There's yet. going to be stuff that like this that happens now, where in theory there should be no change between UK and EU until December 31st. In practice, yeah. I'm sure there will be, because Definitely. instructions don't necessarily get through and you'll go to some border officer and they'll they'll say, Oh, UK, you left. I read you left. Yeah, exactly. You know, why, exactly. why are you coming here? Whatever, whatever it is. Uh, whatever it is um, and these things will happen people will start to notice and one of the things that I think is very interesting in the f- f- future not so fun if you're on the receiving end of this will be that from here on in so we leave day one looks no different to day minus one we leave from here on in things that have been taken for granted and will now be lost yeah so whether you know it's future generations will not be on Erasmus whether it's people not being able to take their pets people not being able to buy as much bring as many bottles of wine back from france or bottles of beer back from belgium to to england um tour company reps who have been accustomed to working around europe the stories of ski instructors in france who are not going to be able to work there there are going to be these stories of loss now initially obviously people will wish to play them down and uh, it's you know freedom chris freedom but I wonder what the impact will be of all of those stories of loss because we've left and everyone thinks it was a great triumph. If you weren't on Twitter, you will have missed the uh, tweet from Dan. Oh no, you were on Twitter. You replied magnificently to a tweet from Dan Hannon saying the the UK has not yet uh, descended into chaos. And you replied, pointed out perfectly that (laughs) nor had it. uh, We've seen all the great sunlit uplands and whatever. I'm not doing it justice there. No, it it was... I think that this is a tactic that we should all use, actually, with with the because we're going to see this again and again and again during the transition period and beyond. You're going to get people saying, "See, Project Fear, um, none of the predicted chaos has happened. Everything's fine." Um, the response to that, firstly, is to be pretty uh, ruthless in cataloguing actual um, job losses, closures, all the various problems that will arise and are arising. Uh, but secondly, of course. You keep insisting we're in transition. Um, we now have effectively Brino, we're Brexit in name only. Uh, the difference is not that we are no longer uh, subject to EU rules and so on. The difference is that we no longer have a say on EU rules and so on. And then the third thing, of course, to say is um, if there's no difference to where we were before, what was the point of doing it? Um, you were arguing that we were going to Brexit for all these reasons, X, Y, and Z, Sunnit Uplands and so on. So where are they? You know, it's not it's not on us to prove that we um, haven't suffered. It's on you to prove that we've benefited. So I think that's what we just need to be absolutely... Um, we need to keep banging that message home. I, I, think that's, I think that's the only fair thing to do. What I, what I have said to those campaigning those who did campaign for remain in the uh, in the past now will say to people now there's a lot of people who are saying on that side who are saying yes but wait till the recession or you know wait till we get all these losses a lot of it will not be obvious yeah. 
a lot of you know if if for example the impact over the next 10 years is say the loss of 0.2% of growth per year yeah. that's not necessarily going to be obvious oh. to people stop expecting that it's going to be yeah um it's going to be some big moment where the the UK suddenly where everybody wakes up and goes you know oh there's a recession that's because we left the EU we must yeah. rejoin or something that's not how it's going to that's no. not how it's going to work it you know from a from a trade perspective what we know from a trade perspective is that um open trade it overall leads to greater gdp so we will have less open trade in the future therefore you know almost by extent it will be of 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 that will have an impact on GDP. Other things the government does may go the other way, particularly if they start building lots of um, infrastructure projects or whatever. But it may not. It may not be that noticeable. The things that will be noticeable for will be the day-to-day things, and there are such a long list. And if the UK now is saying we will participate in absolutely nothing that has any relationship to the European Court of Justice. And we will have no alignment. If those words are to be taken at face value, yeah. there are a huge number of things that we take for granted. I mean, I even read in the Sunday Times, uh, I think a re- vaguely respectable commentator, who was saying, oh, I'm sure the UK and the EU will come to an agreement on a new EHIC card hmm. at the end of the year. I thought, well, the way we're going, no, we won't. No, exactly. Where, 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 and where's... so people are still in this place of saying, oh, no, we'll still have EHIC, yeah. we'll still have Erasmus, we'll still have research yeah. funding. Now, all of those go if you put a hard line and say, we will not play under anyone else's rules. And that seems to be the new line of the UK government is, we only play by our own rules. If it's your rules, we don't want to play. <clears throat> so this is definitely something we need to talk about, and I think that we'll be coming back to um, occasionally through through this podcast. I, I hope to, I plan to, because I think we need to keep pulling the, the government up. On this, I think. Well, I'm starting from my basic assumption is that you can't take the government at face value. They are, they're saying all of this for the consumption of their core, their base. But re- the reality is that just as prior to Brexit, prior to the conclusion of the withdrawal agreement, so now the reality is that they will say anything they want to the public to curry favour with that public, but in reality they will simply fold. Um, so... Um, for example, I think it's really important that people pay very close attention to the negotiating mandate, the proposal for a negotiating mandate that Barnier published yesterday, that the Commission, the commission published yesterday. So um, this is what happens. The European Commission, um, as it prepares for a negotiation with uh, a third country, with a, with, a, with a foreign country, with a foreign partner, um, prepares its mandate which roughly outlines what it wants from a final agreement. That mandate then goes into a negotiating directive, which is adopted by the Council. So that that is to say the the, the member states. Um, Usually the proposal published by the Commission won't be changed an awful lot in in, in Council. They've already consulted with the member states to get there, so it shouldn't be dramatically different. 
So look look carefully at this. Um, Steve Pierce published a fantastic 31 or 32 tweet thread yesterday in which he did his um, first analysis of, of I was in meetings day. and events, so I couldn't do my normal uh, long thing. Yeah. So good so good that Steve did it instead. <laughs> well, you should do it as well. Maybe you well, should Steve do it Steve did more. one. Dimitri Grosbinski also did some things that yeah, floated out yeah, at yeah. him. So. Well, what's important about this... Uh, negoti- this proposal for a negotiating mandate is that my, my strong s- suspicion is that that's what we'll end up with mm-hmm. uh, I don't think the member states are going to change it a great deal which means that that's, what's the, what, that's what the commission is going to go into the negotiations seeking and um, in this negotiation I, I see the commission has been, as being very much the ones with the, the, the as, as usual being, being the party that has um, the strongest hand and the commission and and the UK is likely to basically take it. So I don't know whether the UK will take it, but I think there's an important point you make about the the, the commission lays this out. In my experience, when the commission adopts a mandate like this, they expect the vast majority, if not quite absolutely everything, yeah, to be delivered. Yeah, absolutely. That is, you know, that essentially the European <coughs> member states have given the negotiating team and the commission, these instructions yeah. and the expectation that they'll be delivered. Because if you don't deliver everything, that's the product of a compromise between 27 countries. Yeah. If you don't deliver everything, it potentially unravels some of that compromise and that's what they have to spend time exactly. sort of building up. And this is, a, this, is, this is something that I'm living at the moment because I'm, I'm currently negotiating an agreement with, um, with, with, a, with a Central Asian country. And in every negotiating round that we go into, the document at the top of my file is the mandate and at every point whenever we get to a point of, of, of conflict of discussion of, of controversy where um, our proposal is um, unacceptable to the other side and we discuss an alternative formulation the first thing that we do is we look at what the mandate says is this in line with the mandate are we still delivering on the mandate now there are a couple of places where we don't where we're going to depart from the mandate but the, there are very few, and where that's the case, we do it very in, in full knowledge that that's what we're doing. We consult the member states on the way, so the member, member states know that we're beginning to depart slightly from the mandate. Um, in other words, the mandate that is about to be adopted by the Commission and the Council is very likely to be almost entirely um, met um, it, that's likely to be the shape of the future relationship between the UK and the EU, if we have one. Of course, the other, the other the alternative is that um, that the UK isn't bluffing, that Johnson isn't bluffing, and that he will simply walk away if he doesn't get what he wants. Uh, in which case, we're, we're, we're looking at some kind of no deal situation uh, again. I, I seriously put it at 50-50 right now, no deal versus deal. Um, because I, t- I see the two sides are actually talking past each other. So on the... Um, on the UK side, you get lots of talk saying, ah, the EU are not taking us seriously. They're not taking our words seriously. And like you just said, the reason the EU is not taking the UK words seriously is not because they don't believe they're possible. It's just they've, they've just not been tested. They don't trust the UK government actually means them. And you can't take the other side's words seriously if you, don't act, if, if you think the other side is going to climb down. That's the whole point of negotiations. Yeah. So the UK side is, is, is kind of not getting that and then is egged on by the usual excitable common commentators. Whereas on the EU side, if you think about the real interests for the EU, what the priorities are, and um, the priorities, meant, some of them were actually delivered in 
the withdrawal agreement. That's why they were put there. Northern Ireland, um, citizens' rights, money, but there are a few other things in there like geographical indications that are very important to the EU. The next most important priority to the EU is going to be integrity of both the single market but also integrity of existing trade deals so you're not just giving the UK the most special deal ever the EU no. is net you know the EU giving complete tariff free quota free is going to be unusual and to do that they expect the UK to pay in a way that's the way trade deals work so that it, it seems to me there's still a danger the two sides are actually talking past each other both sides will be quite prepared I think at this point to go to no deal and the other thing I'm then saying is that any equal in any case the trade this is only the trade deal which only covers tariffs and a few bits and pieces of services and other things the huge range of other things which constitute trade look like at the moment they're going to fall by the the wayside um, this year so I think it's going to be a process of many years altogether yeah. to move towards a stable relationship we also need to remember we also at the same time we're going to have negotiations on implementing the Northern Ireland Protocol hmm. we should remember that we're supposed to have negotiations on fish which I cannot believe will be uh, easy and I've heard some frightful uh, predictions from people about how badly that could, those could go hmm. data equivalents we're not even sure with the Boris Johnson speech I've had um, one or two panicked calls this morning going, is the UK government even still committed to doing enough to get secure data equivalents from the EU? Because it might mean having to follow EU rules. Yeah. So what's actually happening into the UK? It's the UK is spreading confusion around itself because it's your question. Nobody knows whether the UK government can be believed or not. Well, I mean, they can't. I mean, the, 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 so Johnson's got absolute form that the EU... Um, is now taking into account so he's got form on on mm-hmm. um backing down at the last minute um in exchange for some um gloss some form of words that makes him look as if he can mm. sort of sell uh, sell it as a victory back home so on the content i think the eu is fairly confident that he'll he'll cave but if he doesn't um what does that mean um well as you say um the proposal the proposed mandate um, that the Commission's put together looks a bit like an association agreement. So an association agreement is the uh, large comprehensive agreement that, you ha- that the EU has with most of its neighbours, so like Ukraine, for example, or Georgia. Uh, and um, there's a trade part of it, but there are also all the other bits. There's a political part, there's a sort of sector-by-sector sector sector part. It, it's comprehensive. It covers an, all, uh, uh, an awful lot of stuff uh, and, and, and is a single umbrella agreement that... Uh, defines the entire relationship. That seems almost impossible to do within the deadline that Johnson set. So um, either the Commission is calculating that actually he's just bluffing about that deadline and that, that transition, they, they will ask to extend transition, which I think is a, a fairly decent calculation, or if not, then then we have a couple of options. I mean, one option, of course, is to go, you know, no deal, uh, crash out. Um, I, I honestly don't think I. You say you put it fifty-fifty, David. I, I don't. I, I think I still think that's quite unlikely. I think I think Johnson again. Johnson's got form. You know, several times now they've failed to um, to talk the talk, uh, to walk the walk. You know, despite talking the talk. So I don't see that as necessarily a particularly high risk. But what might happen 
is that you will then end up with a skinny trade-only kind of deal at the end of the year and then negotiations continuing on the other bit. So instead of having an association agreement with an, um, you know, an umbrella association agreement, you end up in a more sort of Swiss-style set of bilateral agreements, uh, which is not what the EU wants, but I suspect mm. might be what the well, EU takes. I was going to say, even an association agreement, you don't be careful there. You say comprehensive, and that's a sort of that's an EU word they use. It's comprehensive. It's not nearly comprehensive like membership is comprehensive. No, you no, still have not, no. other bits and pieces on the side, so schemes like um, Erasmus or various mutual recognitions or whatever can still happen outside of even a comprehensive association agreement, and that that's one of the things that is going to be sent to baffle everybody over the next few months is the, the use of terminology free trade agreements which don't deliver free trade mm. Mm. ultimately I mean that's that's a global problem that's not just UK mm. or EU um, comprehensive association agreements which cover a lot of subjects but comprehensive means covering a lot of subjects doesn't mean covering all by any by any means um, you know, and, and same with, with these Johnson's words, no alignment, which could mean no alignment as we wish to define alignment, but will align where we wish to define it is here in our interests. Similarly, no ECJ, really. We're not going to participate in anything that involves hmm. the ECJ in any way, in, even though, as people have pointed out, we've already signed a withdrawal agreement that contains hmm. references to ECJ, as we have, it contains references to state aid. Hmm. Um, so... Trade talks at the best of times are full of misleading jargon, hmm. and I'm afraid that these are going to be no exception. And you may well be right. Johnson may just use that misleading jargon to um, to do what he wants to do. But one of the interesting things that we're not talking about this at all, so we're just talking about the political process here hmm. and what the what the politicians and the negotiators want. But you're doing it on behalf of um, the tr- trade agreements, particularly on behalf of businesses and consumers, hmm. and the. There's no sign on the UK side whatsoever that they are aware of what are what UK business priorities are going to be. Mm. What are we actually trying to achieve in the UK through a free trade agreement, which will lower? T- it's a tariff lowering agreement essentially. Mm. It's, what are we? What are we, What are we actually gaining from that or losing from that? Who's important? Which bits are important? Which bits are not important? Yeah. I don't think we even know. No, I don't, well, we don't. We don't, we we don't have a defined process in the UK, unlike 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 the EU. I mean, I saw a classic, a typical classic Brexiter comment this morning in reply to one of Steve Piz's um, <laughs> tweets, where he was talking about the role of the European Parliament and how the European Parliament doesn't have a role, a formal role, in adopting the mandate, the negotiating mandate. It does have a role, of course, in uh, in in approving the final agreement um, by by a simple majority will go to the parliament, um, and of course the Brexiter replied saying, "Well, isn't that just typical? It just shows that the uh, European Parliament's just a talking shop with no real power. Democracy." Pfft. To which, I mean, I'm not going to bother replying to each one of these stupid comments, but to which I say, "Well, what's the role of the UK Parliament then in preparing the UK's negotiating mandate? Where where's the stakeholder consultation and involvement?" in preparing the UK's negotiating position. Um, Where's the UK's published negotiating um, directive? Um, (laughs) You got an impact assessment for your uh, agreement here? You got to do an impact assessment? Well, we'll have to, won't we? 
because that's that's part of the rules. So the oddity about UK EU talks at the moment is on neither side is there any has there been any public consultation or impact assessments. Uh, I'll save on the UK side, you had the uh, the document that to, to justify the Theresa May's version of the the deal. But apart from that, there's been nothing on the new on the new withdrawal agreement. The withdrawal agreement was spectacularly under scrutinised, and I still think that there will be that will become an issue in the yeah. in the future once people realise yeah. precisely what it entails. But even on the EU side, this is a bit odd the way it's being. It's approached. true. It has had. A, it, it's true that um, because of the political nature of it um, and the pressure to get this done quickly um, the normal stakeholder consultation process seems to have been streamlined at the very least but um, I, 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 to be honest I don't know exactly what the task force has done on that um, be interesting to see but. yeah so it, 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 all, it, it all adds to the feeling that this is all being done to a needlessly fast timetable without any real insight on the UK side but not really enough on the EU side as to whatever we're trying to build into the future and that whatever happens by the end of this year and this is very good news for me personally obviously that um, this goes on for a very long time yeah. uh, very good news for me professionally anyway yeah. that yeah we're talking about build, rebuilding the, rebuilding a, a UK-EU relationship. We're talking about the fact... One, one of the things I was interested to see, I think it was on Friday or Thursday last week, Michael Gove said, oh, the reason we need to leave the EU is that we... Um, we need to leave the EU because I used to get a few decisions across my desk and I was told I couldn't challenge them because it was an EU rule. Now, aside from... The question of whether that's actually true or not, which I do have some slight doubts because um, it, it, it would be an easy an easy thing to say, but EU rules could have been changed before anyway. I do wonder whether the new version of that will be we we can't we can't change it because it doesn't actually make any sense to change it. EU rule was a shorthand for actually what the case was. It just wasn't in our interests to do something. Well, I mean, David, we all, we all know that Gove was speaking with a forked tongue there, that, that, that he's, it's far more likely in future that British ministers are going to get things on their desk that they can't do anything about because it's EU rules, in other words, something that they've signed up to in an international treaty, than it was in the past where EU rules that were in the process of being made had all sorts of ways in which member states could influence or, or change or stop those rules but in any case of course this is um, this is now one of my pet peeves um, if a rule is being made at the European level we have systems in place to ensure democratic accountability of those decisions being taken at the European level and that doesn't necessarily mean that member state national level gets to have a, a an absolute veto on it that's the entire point of European um, well, I'm not going to get off on my on my hobby horse. You, 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 you probably know uh, what. Certainly, some of the listeners will know my um, strong feelings on the subject of European federalism and how it's important that decisions are taken at the appropriate level. And if the if the appropriate level is the European level, then it's not appropriate for the nation for the national level to get involved. 
I'm, and I'm, vice versa. I'm going to skillfully evade, uh, move on from your uh, hobby horse because I've got a linked subject which is going to be fascinating, which has not in any way been resolved in the uh, UK. The power of UK devolved authorities in all of this. Yes. So when they were set up, so for example, it exactly. appears that the UK devolved authorities have powers over agricultural standards. Well, that was an easy thing to give them when um, we were actually part of the EU. Yeah. Now, yeah. how are they going to be involved? How is that going to work? The UK government is going to be asked this question in early rounds of negotiations with everybody, with every other country. I don't know that the UK government can say how it's going to well, work. Well, no, because the UK is not a federal state, and the UK doesn't have a, a, a sophisticated and developed a notion of de- devolution of powers or, or, or separation of powers. This is a, another thing that I think, I hope we're going to come back to on the podcast, because uh, Keir Starmer has said some interesting things on this. On this, he, He's been talking about British federalism, and it'll be interesting to see whether he means it. <laughs> Um, and if he does, that could be. A, I think that could be a really interesting development. There was there was talk actually during the during the last week about a in English assembly or something. But then there's lots of talk buzzing around London at the moment about many different things yeah. politically. Um, and I don't think there's going to be enough attention for doing all of these. You know, sending the House of Lords to York or whatever. I don't think it's been well understood quite how much work there's going to be on the. Northern Ireland to GB. I don't think it's been understood that quite how many of our laws people now want to look at again, you know, for example, our procurement laws, which were very much based on EU procurement laws, obviously. There's so much to do. The agriculture, the agriculture built, there is so much for the UK government to do. And then you are going to have, frankly, the future of Northern Ireland, the future of Scotland. The now opinion polls are starting to be fairly consistently show a major just about majority support for um Scottish independence 5248 yeah. mm-hmm. yeah. um, number again yeah so it's, i mean presumably if it's 5248 in favor of um um independent scotland i assume that those who uh, supported brexit will of course they'll will, say, oh, will say that not only an should overwhelming there be a, mandate it's an overwhelming mandate and that's important that we 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 go with that and there must be no uh, you know, there must be no obstructions to yeah. that because the people will have spoken. The thing is that any discussion about sending the House of Lords to York or any any discussion like that, if it's coming from the government, from HMG, from the Tory Party, it's just paying lip service. It's just it's it's not serious because the the entire basis for Brexit and for their approach to the world is one of exceptionalism, one of Westminster exceptionalism. And that works down, looking down as well as looking up. If, 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 if it's inappropriate for Brussels to be taking decisions that should be taken by Westminster, then it's inappropriate for Holyrood to be taking those decisions or, or, or anywhere else or, or um, City Hall in London. So I don't believe for a second that we're going to see any major and interesting constitutional developments under this current government. But what might be interesting is if Keir Starmer um, sees the sees this and sees that sees that there's a need for it, resulting from the whole Brexit saga and from um, the the push now for, for Scottish independence. Well, that and that could lead to something interesting. One of your listeners, Keir Starmer. Oh, I, I, I yeah, I'm sure he is. <laughs> I Keir, you right. Um, what I will say about UK exceptionalism, this is taking 
the, the decision to Brexit in an interesting way. And as you know, as many of listeners will know, I I take mostly a trade analyst position on Brexit. I'm analysing it. I'm not a campaigner in any in any particular way. But one of the things that's most obvious to me is looking at the trade relationship is that there weren't many ways one could Brexit one could Brexit, there were many conversations one could have had, and we now seem to be going into a direction that is very much a sort of Dominic Cummings brain Brexit, whereby he has decided somehow that it's going to be UK exceptionalism, that Westminster exceptionalism you just kind of talked about. We're not going to do trade deals with anybody else if it involves following their rules, so the US is apparently going to follow our rules to do a trade deal with uh, with them, which is obviously laughable. Um, and apparently, this is the very Cummings bit, by putting in place uh, our own regulations on artificial intelligence, that's going to transform our economy, and that's all we need, and that's the reason to, to Brexit. Now, there is a chance, of course, that that will turn out to be brilliantly um, correct, and the UK will be so magnificently advantaged that you know, everybody will wonder how we do it. I put that chance at about one percent, but you know others may may have a may have a different uh, view of it. It's the, it's the arrogance of thinking that nobody else is working on artificial intelligence, as if there aren't UN agencies working on this, as if there aren't think tanks all around the world working on um, how the hell we're going to regulate artificial intelligence, as if there aren't committees in Brussels that haven't been working on that for the last five years or more. I mean, it's one of the top subjects of discussion in foreign policy circles here in Brussels. Like, how the hell are we going to um, regulate artificial intelligence? How the hell can we um, take a European approach to this that will become the international de facto standard and so th- that we won't be bound by whatever the Chinese or the Americans do? I mean, as if as if people aren't thinking about this. And the notion that the, the UK can just sort of rock up and come up with some rules of its own that then everybody can be, oh yeah, of course, that's the way to do it. We'll just follow what the UK... I mean... Well, I'm afraid, and that is, but that is where we're where we're looking at. I mean, I put the same in terms of trade deals. So, these trade deals with Australia and New Zealand we're going to negotiate, which have almost certainly virtually no economic benefit. Because yes, I'd like to sell more to Australia and New Zealand generally, but there's an awful lot of countries between the UK and Australia and New Zealand. So, what you're and they're they're closer, and therefore the costs of sale are going to be. Uh, less for for doing that so we have to be that much better than any of the countries between us and Australia and New Zealand in order to export to them well as you say there's great goods providers all, all, all across uh, in many countries but even services which is our str- strength there are so many um, countries getting better and better at providing services who want to move into that market yeah. so you know, when we're saying, oh, we want to sell more to Australia and New Zealand, why not say from a trade point of view, well, I'd like to sell more locally. I and mean, I often wonder that if you've got a local supermarket, they're probably, if, if they're in London, their winning strategy is probably not to entice customers from Newcastle. Nice if they come, but your winning strategy is to get the people who live closest to you yeah. to start with, yeah. because that's the lowest cost of sale or the cost of purchase. So as soon as you start going further, that's I've not come across any economic model or any sales model that suggests the way to build sales is to target furthest away markets. Well, I mean, there's 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 so much literature on this, and it's just common sense. It's common sense that 
your local market where you currently um, export uh, what mm. 40 50% of everything that we produce in the UK is mm. exported to the EU and vice versa it's it, it's by far the market with which most closely entwined well that's natural as a result of 45 mm. years of EU membership but even without that it would still be the case and the idea that that's simply going to be displaced and sent to much 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 smaller markets on the far side of the world that are already integrated into their uh, globally global region um, <laughs> I mean, if, if you've been to Australia recently, I don't know if you have, but I was I was there last summer, and as you drive in uh, from Sydney Airport to the centre of town, the, 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 every other billboard is in Chinese. It's 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 so obviously become an Asian city. Um, the notion that Australia is simply going to make up for the the shortfall. In the in UK economic performance as a result of it leaving the it's it's simply ridiculous. So so here's one of the things I I did a little bit of research on the percentage shares that countries have of trade, which is local versus sort of global, Mm -hmm. and the UK is already a bit of an outlier. We already probably trade too little with Mm -hmm. the with the EU. Now I see no reason. I'm I'm a trade guy. I see no reason that I don't want to knock down trade barriers around the world. That's great, but in reality, as you say, the markets closer by and the markets you have easier access to are going to be the ones you should be focusing on. We should be selling more from the UK into Europe, um, and then into 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 broader Europe. It's actually not a good look for the UK that so much of our trade is uh, we we have larger shares than we should have with English-speaking countries. Um, and that's not a good sign because that suggests that we're not focusing mm. enough on harder mm. on harder markets, um, and that that we're going to find it harder to move into those. Mm. Um, I think somebody else made a point to me as well that Europe is a very competitive market. So if we can succeed there, then it means yeah. we should be able to succeed yeah. globally. I mean, it, again, it would be a very odd business model to say, you know, we haven't proved we can su- we can succeed locally. So we're going to start by trying to export to New Zealand. No, let's start by trying to export to countries nearby. If that works, if they like our product or our service, then go go global. Well, there's a, there's a reason. There's a reason why the countries that are around Europe are clamouring to get into Europe, into the European market. There's a reason why the negotiations that I'm currently involved with in with with Central Asian countries, why those countries are super keen as mustard. Mm to sell their products and produce into our market. It's because we are the largest market, the richest market, it's because our consumers um, are the people who can make them rich. There are less bar- internal barriers to trade in the EU than there probably are in the US. State oh, yeah. level regulation is very Definitely. is very much a yeah. thing in the in the in And the in US, Canada too. Making it the single the largest single market in the world. And uh, I mean, this is going to be mostly listened to by uh, those who had campaigned on the Remain side, but I think it's important as a, the, also to say anybody who happens upon this who was uh, on, on, the, on the Leave side, this didn't have to be a point about Brexit. Brexit didn't have to be an isolationist um, project, ultimately. Brexit could have taken many forms, but Brexit is taking the form of, at the moment, uh, 
the UK saying to Europe, "We don't need you. We're we're going we're going to be uh, we're going to be fine. We're going to isolate ourselves from your market. We don't need your market." It's mad. I mean, yeah. it's, that that not only is that madness, it can't be sustainable no, it's not over, sustainable. over 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 time. We'll be <coughs> trying to rebuild all of these um, uh, connections over time because, and there's one reason I'm pretty confident we'll be trying to rebuild these connections over time, is that we were one of the main countries trying to build them from scratch originally. Yeah. So we started building them, then um, some some folk came along and. Now we're, it looks like they're going to knock knock them all down. So then again, oh, people are going to say, "Well, hang on a minute, why are we not doing these things?" And somebody will say, "Oh, it's because you know we said no alignment." Someone will say, "Well, you know, surely we can get round that." And I think that you're, you know that's what we're going, that's what we're going to see in the in in the in the coming years. I mean, to me, that's a big sigh, Chris. Yeah, no, I was, I, I was still, I was thinking back to what you said earlier about um, whether Brexit had to be an isolationist problem. I mean, to me, yes, it did actually. It, it, it's, it's only real rationale is an isolationist problem. So all, all the talk of global Britain um, to me has always been transparent cant. I mean, that's clearly um, a, a, a fiction that they've developed for the to, to smooth their own egos and solve their own consciences. It's obviously an isolationist. Problem. So I, I wouldn't necessarily agree. I think that it could have gone another way. You could How? have said, um, "Okay, we didn't want to have all the obligations of membership, but we still understand that we need to cooperate economically." I think you would have put pressure on some on some of the existing closer relationship models um, like Turkey and Norway. Neither of them quite work for the UK, but I think potentially there's something to be discovered in there of a of a model with a country that for whatever reason decides it doesn't want to be part of the EU but wants to be but it's geographically close. But it's a, now we get into a discussion of what free trade means, which I think is, is, is one of the discussions we wanted to have. Because to me um, Frictionless trade comes at a certain. There's, there's. You have to buy the entrance. You have to pay the entrance fee for frictionless, frictionless trade. So, you you could have had a relationship with the EU where uh, you prioritised market access um, and and regulatory alignment, but um, without being involved in the political structures. But that's already a step back from. EU membership, which is the ultimate in terms of frictionless trade. Uh, why? Because in order to have genuinely frictionless trade, you need um, you need to share a common rule book. Uh, you need to have a level playing field. You need to have rules when it comes to uh, competition and so on. And all of those things lead to the inexorable ratcheting of political integration. I mean, that's that's why we are where we are. And so all this talk from people saying, well, um, we started out as, a, as an economic project, but we ended up somewhere that we didn't want to be for ideological reasons. And it's simply not true. It, 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 the, the logic of building a single market is that you need to then proceed down the path of political integration for those, in those areas where I, you need to. I mean, I, mean, I, can, I can see the logic the of that, don't but do I, don't think, I don't think that it's an... I, I don't think you can automatically say, and the UK should... Go down there. If no, the UK but, but, doesn't, if the UK doesn't want to go down that path, or people feel that something being done to them, 
And, and I no, think no, no, I'm, not, I'm not disputing that, but what I'm saying is that as soon as you've said that, as soon as you've conceded that, what you're then saying is then therefore we will not be as integrated, uh, we will not have as free trade as we would have done otherwise. Yeah, that I agree with, yeah. but yeah. that's... Yeah. But, but there are many, what I'm saying is there are many stopping points on that, okay, w- on right. that way. So you could have a sort, yeah, okay, and, sure. But, and the one that has been chosen at the moment looks like almost the furthest away. Yeah. Like, the UK just wants to have nothing to do with Europe. Or, okay, let's have zero tariffs, as if tariffs have been a big issue in international trade for the last right, exactly. 25 yeah, years. Yeah. Um, this This is just... This is just not not helping, you know. We're still we're st- we're still geographically part of Europe, you know. For a thousand years, we've been part of European history, yeah. And you know, and 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 I think uh, this we have occasionally had periods where we've gone in on ourselves in the UK, and this will just be another of those periods. But ultimately, um, Europe has always been too important for us to ignore, and. It, it, that is why it's not a sustainable relationship. Now you say, oh, I, I don't like the argument that only membership with continuing political integration is the only sustainable relationship. Well, I'm not saying that. Um, there are obviously sustainable relationships outside. So Norway has a sustainable mm. relationship. Switzerland has a sustainable relationship. So we have to find... And Ukraine has a sort of more or less sustainable. Yeah. But it, they're, they're just not as good relationships, I mean, yeah, in my well, view. In they, your view. And, and I think that's going to be the question. This is now going to be a big issue in UK politics or it will be if there is UK politics because there is a UK and because there is a Labour Party both of which must be considered with a little scepticism at the moment I mean this is one of the problems that we've had in the past with the Labour Party the Labour Party has had in the last few years very little interest in any of these questions it's always difficult to get the Labour Party interested in trade anyway because that's you most people don't go into the Labour Party because they're interested in trade anyway um yeah, they are more interesting questions of identity, of economic distribution. Fair, fair enough. But where is the Labour Party, and if Kistama is elected, where are they going to come in this debate? I cannot see a situation in which the Labour Party is not arguing in favour of closer ties with Europe in the future. And one election, they will win on that basis. Pro-Europeans will win yeah. a UK election within the next few years that I have no doubt and th- we what will. happens and but then, then what happens <laughs> but what does that mean yeah. yeah exactly where have we got to and what actually happens and one of the things I looked at in my own work was at what point can you consider yourself to actually have a stable consensus in terms of a particular economic model free trade model and the answer is when you've actually had a change of government and it hasn't made much difference to this well at the moment it's impossible to believe that the UK could have a change of government without there being huge changes to our relationship with the EU so I think that's what we've got to to look for and that's if this this is going to be a big thing going forward yeah you were asking me about free trade and the difference between free trade and free trade agreements and it's really huge and just to take some consumer examples free trade that could be described as mobile mobile phone roaming for example across across Europe that's free trade I can now take my take that phone and it can make calls anywhere across Europe at the same cost so that's that's free trade but you won't find that in a free trade agreement um, you could describe science as a service that um, uh, we, we very good at selling actually into in the, in the UK so we have scientific uh, 
we're part of the EU scientific programs at the moment. We probably won't be in the future. So that's not in a free trade agreement. That's in a different hmm. agreement. Um, you could go on in so many hmm. ways. Um, the pe- movement of people, that is the biggest one. Uh, will people from the UK, or more specifically actually Great Britain, because people in Northern Ireland, have the, if they were born, they have the rights to an Irish passport, will people in from Great Britain be able to come to Brussels to do a couple of days freelance work, which many people do at the moment? That's trade it might some of that might be in a trade agreement mm. but some of it is going to be down to the visa requirements of mm. individual european countries will the uk be able to export food items without heavy inspections or indeed food items at all mm. in the in in the future that's part of that's part of trade you could just go on and on yeah. and on about all the things that are part of trade and the important thing is that not very few of them are actually going to form part of a thin free trade agreement yeah. and many of them uh, come in their own in their own special packages with EU rules attached because EU rules really set the rules for mm. more broadly European participation so it's not just the EU typically EU countries who participate in all these programs it's all the mm. neighboring countries who wish to participate as well mm-hmm um, exactly. for which typically they would might pay a fee yeah. and then they have to follow the rules yeah. so if we're not following anybody else's rules yeah. but particularly EU rules it's not just EU countries we're, we're locking ourselves out of the hole yes exactly exactly there's an continent. entire network there's an entire network here of, of, of relationships and those relations I mean, at the centre of that network is the EU so you want to go and do an agreement with Morocco you want to go and do an agreement with Iceland you want to do an agreement with Moldova um, well, it's going to have to be uh, an agreement that is based on the agreements that they already have with the EU. Um, so, no, this is another thing that I've banged on about in, uh, in the, on the podcast in the past, which is the way in which the discussion of this in British media and British politics has been very simplistic and very focused on tariffs. But tariffs, as mm. we've said so many times... Are, are, really not the issue here it, it, it there's so little there's there's so little of this this that, that is about tariffs um mm-hmm. trade is so much more than than that um and it's tricky to define so again looking at the agreement that i'm negotiating we have um we have nine titles in this agreement one of the titles is the, is, is called trade and trade related um issues and it's the biggest one um, it's the most technical one, but even that is fuzzy around the edges. You know what's trade, what isn't trade, um, and it doesn't deal with tariffs. It does The entire chapter is is non-preferential. In other words, it doesn't deal with tariffs. Tariffs are being dealt with separately um, in the context of the general system of preferences. So this focus that you have in the British discussion on tariffs it, it is seems to me to be a a hopeless diversion from the important stuff here which is what concretely do we do on a day-to-day basis between the UK and the EU so, so I'll take a couple of examples we'll take one service and one manufacturing example the service example is broadcasting um, there is a long-standing exemption from including audiovisual services in EU trade agreements 
previously a lot of companies used London as their base um, and then could broadcast into different countries of the EU. As non-members, they wouldn't be able to do that. So they will have some access rights. There are some other treaties through which they have some rights, but it's nothing like the same. So um, broadcasters are, in some cases, moving into the um, in, in, into the EU now in order to still have access. So that's one example. Now take the other example of cars is probably as good an example as any on now they have to meet regulations in order to be exported and most UK cars are exported and most of those are exported to the EU well they obviously have to meet EU rules in the few now those EU rules are in turn based on international rules developed at UNEC ECE but usually on the basis of existing EU type approval rules uh, yes and in the future, but in the future, obviously the UK has no say over whatever the EU decides to adopt in terms of rules for any particular product. But we'll have to meet it if we want to export to them. Then you ask yourself, well, will the UK have different rules ourselves? If we had different rules, either that would make it difficult to export, or and, and potentially you'd have to have two assembly lines or whatever, which isn't worth it. Or what tend, typically tends to happen is you just end up adopting the, the yeah. EU rules anyway. Exactly. And there's a point you said earlier about actually having less influence yeah. in the future. And we may well find that in, in many areas we do have less influence because logically it still makes sense to follow the EU rules because the companies are going to have to follow them anyway for products. But we now no longer have a say in them and therefore... Um, yeah, we, we, we now have less say. So that is taking back control, which obviously is what it, this is all about. So you need to be careful on, 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 on all of this. And many of these impacts will take years to be yeah. clear, clearly seen. In many cases, it won't be a problem because, okay, there's inter- the international standards, so we're just broadly happy with it. But something will happen. I don't know whether it will be soon or later. New rules will be passed, new regulations, and something will happen that will really disadvantage the UK. Well, <laughs> And that will be the point at which people say, typical EU, what a beastly bunch of people they yeah. are. Yeah, exactly, They're colonising us with their rules. Uh, mm. But you know, they, they, those were rules that you used to have a say in, and you chose to give up. So let, let's take a concrete example, um, taken entirely at random. Look at the, uh, look at the lights on tractors. <laughs> Uh, little flashing lights on tractors. David, you may not know this, but um, some some of the listeners will know why I, why I raise this specific issue. Um, there is um, an EU type approval regulation that says that um, any tractor sold on the EU market must be fitted with little orange lights that um, can be switched on on the road. Now, there's no EU legislation saying that they have to be switched on. That's a matter of member state competence. But it is a rule to say that you must have those lights fitted to a tractor if that tractor is going to be sold on the EU market. And the reason for that is that in some EU member states, it is a, a national law that tractors must have those lights on when they're on the public highway. Um, and in order to be able to sell therefore into any EU um, country um, the tractor industry wanted um, it to be a rule that all tractors should be fitted with those lights right okay so now in the UK in the wonderful future liberalized UK where JCB builds tractors um, 
Will JCB go to the UK government and say, well, um, we don't have any rule in the UK demanding that we have orange, little orange lights on tractors um, lit while we're driving down the highway, and therefore um, we don't think that we should fit these. So could you please um, legislate so that it's legal to sell a tractor in the UK market without those little orange lights? Um, well, now, if the UK government does that, does JCB still want to build tractors and sell them onto the EU market? In which case, as you say, it's going to have two production lines. It's going to have one where the tra tractor drives off without the little orange lights fitted, and another where um, some workers are busy fitting um, orange lights onto those tractors so that it can be sold onto the EU market. Well, that adds cost and, 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 and burden. So why not simply have a single rule for, for tractors being sold in the UK and in the EU? But that rule is going to follow what's done in the EU. The EU isn't going to adapt its rules to cater for this small market on its edge. So that's just an illustration of why it is that it is inevitable, following the principle of Occam's razor, that in the future the British will simply, by, by sheer force of um, economic pressure, end up um, effectively applying EU rules over which it no longer has any say in its manufacturing sector. Because if not, it'll end up having more cost than its EU competitors. And also, what you'll also find is consumer choice will be reduced. Because what will, what, what will end up happening is that um, EU manufacturers of tractors will look at the UK market and say, well, well, how many we sell, you know, every year we sell maybe sort of 5% of our tractors to, 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 to the UK market. And the cost of... Of, of of fitting our track our, our factories with systems to produce UK specific. Now it may not be a good example because of course you see that many um, manufacturers we, we've effectively had um, a bifurcation market because UK cars are um, right are right hand drive. So manufacturers make right hand drive models for sale on the UK and other global markets. Um, um, so often where there's volume involved um, manufacturers will take the hit and say fair enough you know what we'll, we'll, we'll. But, but of course the, the point of having the single market was trying to reduce those um, the, 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 those examples as far as possible to create a homogeneous market to, to, to cut costs for manufacturers um, now I, I, I lived in Canada for a while and Canada is a smaller market and um, you could see that the choice um, especially when it came to sort of ele consumer electronics, for example, um, the choice to Canadian consumers um, when it came to consumer electronics was was radically smaller than it was for Americans or or, or, or or generally for Europeans, and that's because many manufacturers simply decided they didn't want to sell to the Canadian market because they couldn't be bothered to do all the paperwork involved in getting something approved for the Canadian market. Now the UK is still quite a big market, so. Um, it will be cushioned to a certain degree from that, more than, for example, Luxembourg would be if Luxembourg decided to leave the EU. Um, but nevertheless, you're going to see the kind of economic pressures come to bear. And yeah, this is a you know where where, where we came in, where we get where we may be he heading heading out uh, of of this uh, of this recording is to say you know Johnson is talking about a world where tariff reduction seems to be the important thing in free trade agreements. Hasn't been for many years I was actually talking to a colleague earlier today I was saying you know is, is, isn't Johnson's vision uh, kind of seems to be that of the trade of the 1850s and the colleague of mine disagreed he thought it was more like the 1750s conception of trade but it is such 
it, it is this weird confection of tariffs are terribly important and then and we you know go, going back years combined with this weird futuristic stuff about artificial intelligence and mm. that appears yeah. to be UK trade policy yeah. vision as i say well as they as they say about uh, project plans that they typically don't survive contact yeah. with the yeah. yeah. <laughs> reality exactly. and yeah. it's rather sounds i don't think that the UK's plans are going to survive contact either but how they evolve over the next few months what actually happens in trade talks i think this is all to be yeah i think that can br- brings us full circle i mean i think yeah. what we're what we're looking at is um uh, a government and a prime minister with a track record of saying one thing and doing another and i think everybody around um understands that and fa- and, and factors that into the uh, into their assessment so i think in brussels people will be looking at what he's saying and, and looking at his speech yesterday um with and, and and delivering an enormously large pinch of salt because we know that in the past he said one thing but done completely another when 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 that's what he needs or when that's what the country needs and i i think that he's shown that he's very unwilling to contemplate a no deal situation um and i really i, I so I, I fully expect um the speech yesterday to be walked back on well we shall so we'll we shall see but if i was a business con- considering my long-term future in the uk i think i'd be uh, thinking about my options as they say right yeah. uh, right now whether yeah. or not that comes to be yeah well, it's, it's still more uncertainty so strangely enough it seems that brexit wasn't done on friday that's amazing i mean <laughs> who, who, who knew? no sun that uplands will come though whether in our lifetime or somebody else's for, but for who <laughs> well who knows listen David it's been great we're on our lunch break we want to go and get some lunch um, I think we should wrap up um, are you in Brussels for long? so I'm um, having various meetings till tomorrow and then I'm back a couple of times during the rest of February trying to sniff around what the commission are thinking what MEPs are thinking what the whole um ecosystem around around them is uh, is thinking so that I can write some long and interminable Twitter thread entitled what I just heard in Brussels because that seems to be quite fashionable <laughs> a lot of people are doing it and um, and what's your main what, what, what's your main media exposure these days apart from podcasts like this you've, you've been writing for the papers you're doing TV oh, interviews I've done far too much you know when tra- <laughs> When, when trade people get together in the olden days, they talked about uh, some obscure product-specific rule of origin or some tariff that couldn't be got rid of in some trade talks. Nowadays, they talk about their media appearances and uh, <laughs> what, what, yeah, what, what, what's, what's coming up. So uh, you, got, you got groupies. You got you got you got a fan base. Yes, I don't you think have. I have groupies. Yes, you have. <laughs> um, of course, yeah. There do there do seem to be some uh, some some fans, uh, which you know, let's face it, it's good for the it's good for the ego. Probably not as many as you have, though. Yeah, I doubt that. I yeah. Oh, now you've put me on the spot. I have. All right, listen. Um, enough self congratulation. Um. <laughs> Thank you, Greg. It was a, it's as ever a pleasure to be on. Thanks a lot, David. All right, so um, I don't know when we'll be back. We will be back at some point um, in some configuration. Um, I hope this has been useful um, for our first post-Brexit podcast. Not a lost. We'll, we'll be back again. All right, thanks very much. Good night. Good night.
a natural loss. They can't 